Stories, fables, ghostly tales. Welcome, my fiendish friends, my ghoulish ghasts, and devilish denizens. Today I bring you Dracula Part 5 and the end of Chapter 4 from the book. Today we see more of the vampiresses that haunt the castle, feel the impending doom of Mr. Harker, and like a mouse in a maze, how trapped he really is by Count Dracula. It's going to be a bumpy ride, my lovelies, and I hope you enjoy tonight's continuation of Dracula by Bram Stoker. Turn the lights off, turn the sound up, and let's take a bite out of today's story. Seventeen June. This morning, as I was sitting on the edge of my bed, cudgeling my brains, I heard without a cracking of whips and pounding and scraping of horses' feet up the rocky path beyond the courtyard. With joy, I hurried to the window and saw drive into the yard two great litre wagons, each drawn by eight sturdy horses, and at the head of each pair, a Slovak, with his wide hat, great nail-studded belt, dirty sheepskin, and high boots. They had also their long staves in hand. I ran to the door, intending to descend and try to join them through the main hall. As I thought that way might be open for them, again a shock. My door was fastened on the outside. Then I ran to the window and cried to them. They looked up at me stupidly and pointed, but just then the hetman of these Ghani came out, and seeing them pointing to my window, said something, at which they laughed. Henceforth, no effort of mine, no piteous cry or agonized entreaty would make them even look at me. They resolutely turned away. The later wagons contained great square boxes with handles of thick rope. These were evidently empty by the ease of which these Slovaks handled them, and by their resonance as they were roughly moved. When they were all unloaded and packed in a great heap in one corner of the yard, the Slovaks were given some money by the Zgani, and spitting on it for luck, lazily went each to his horse's head. Shortly afterwards, I heard the cracking of their whips die away in the distance. June 24th Before morning Last night the Count left me early, and locked himself into his own room, as soon as I dared, I ran up to the winding stair and looked out of the window, which opened south. I thought I would watch for the Count, for there is something going on. The Zgani are quartered somewhere in the castle and are doing work of some kind. I know it, for now and then I hear a far away muffled sound as a mattock and spade, and whatever it is, it must be the end of some ruthless villainy. I had been at the window somewhat less than half an hour when I saw something coming out of the Count's window. I drew back and watched carefully, and saw the whole man emerge. It was a new shock to me to find that he had on the suit of clothing which I had worn whilst travelling here, and slung over his shoulder the terrible bag which I had seen the woman take away. There could be no doubt as to his guest, and in my garb too. This then, in his new scheme of evil, that he will allow others to see me 
as they think, so that he may both leave evidence that I have been seen in the towns or villages posting my own letters, and that any wickedness which he may do shall by the local people be attributed to me. It makes me rage to think that this can go on. And whilst I am shut up here, a veritable prisoner, but without that protection of the law, which is even a criminal's right and consolation. I thought I would watch for the Count's return, and for a long time sat doggedly at the window. Then I began to notice that there were some quaint little specks floating in the rays of the moonlight. They were like the tiniest grains of dust, and they whirled around and gathered in clusters in a nebulous sort of way. I watched them with a sense of soothing, and a sort of calm stole over me. I leaned back into the embrasure in a more comfortable position, so that I could enjoy more fully the aerial gamboling. Something made me start up, a low, piteous howling of dogs somewhere far below in the valley, which was hidden from my sight. Louder it seemed to ring in my ears, and the floating motes of dust to take new shape to the sound as they danced in the moonlight. I felt myself struggling to awake to some call of my instincts, nay, my very soul was struggling, and my half-remembered sensibilities were striving to answer the call. I was becoming hypnotized. Quicker and quicker danced the dust. The moonbeams seemed to quiver as they went by me into the mass of gloom beyond. More and more they gathered, till they seemed to take dim phantom shapes. And then I started, broad awake and in full possession of my senses, and ran screaming from the place. The phantom shapes, which were becoming gradually materialized from the moonbeams, were those of the three ghostly women to whom I was doomed. I fled, and felt somewhat safer in my own room, where there was no moonlight, and where the lamp was burning brightly. When a couple of hours had passed, I heard something stirring in the Count's room, something like a sharp wail quickly suppressed, and then there was silence, deep, awful silence which chilled me. With a beating heart, I tried the door, but I was locked in my prison and could do nothing. I sat down and simply cried. As I sat, I heard a sound in the courtyard without, the agonized cry of a woman. I rushed to the window and throwing it up, peered out between the bars. There indeed was a woman with disheveled hair, holding her hands over her heart as one distressed with running. She was leaning against a corner of the gateway. When she saw my face at the window, she threw herself forward and shouted in a voice laden with menace, Monster! Give me my child! She threw herself on her knees and raising up her hands, cried the same words in tones which wrung my heart. Then she tore her hair and beat her breast, and abandoned herself to all the violences of extravagant emotion. Finally, she threw herself forward, and, though I could not see her, I could hear the beating of her naked hands against the door. Somewhere high overhead, probably on the tower, I heard the voice of the Count calling in his harsh, metallic whisper. His call seemed to be answered from far and wide by the howling of wolves. Before many minutes had passed, and a pack of them poured like a pent-up dam when liberated, through the wide entrance into the courtyard. There was no cry from the woman, and the howling of wolves was but short. Before long they streamed away, singing me, licking their lips. 
I could not pity her, for I knew now what had become of her child, and she was better dead. What shall I do? What can I do? How can I escape from this dreadful thing of night and gloom and fear? 25th June, morning. No man knows till he has suffered from the night how sweet and how dear to his heart and I the morning can be. When the sun grew so high this morning that it struck the top of the great gateway opposite my window, the high spot which it touched seemed to me as if the dove from the ark had lighted there. My fear fell from me as if it had been a vaporous garment which dissolved in the warmth. I must take action of some sort whilst the courage of the day is upon me. Last night, one of my post-dated letters went to the post. The first of that fatal series which is to blot out the very traces of my existence from the earth. Let me not think of it. Action! It has always been at night time that I have been molested or threatened, or in some way in danger or in fear. I have not yet seen the Count in the daylight. Can it be that he sleeps when others wake? that he may be awake whilst they sleep. If I could only get into his room! But there is no possible way. The door is always locked. No way for me. Yes, there is a way, if one dares to take it. Where his body has gone, why may not another body go? I have seen him myself crawl from his window. Why should not I imitate him and go in by his window? The chances are desperate, but my need is more desperate still. I shall risk it. At the worst, it can only be death, and a man's death is not a calves, and the dreaded hereafter may still be open to me. God help me in my task. Goodbye, Mina. If I fail, goodbye. My faithful friend and second father, goodbye all. And last of all, Mina. Some day later, I have made the effort, and God helping me, have come safely back to this room. I must put down every detail in order. I went whilst my courage was fresh straight to the window on the south side, and at once got outside on the narrow ledge of stone which runs around the building of this side. The stones are big and roughly cut, and the mortar has by process of time been washed away between them. I took off my boots and ventured out on the desperate way. I looked down once so as to make sure that a sudden glimpse of the awful depth would not overcome me, but after that kept my eyes away from it. I knew pretty well the direction and distance of the count window, and made for it as well as I could, having regard to the opportunities available. I did not feel dizzy, I suppose I was too excited, and the time seemed ridiculously short till I found myself standing on the windowsill and trying to raise up the sash. I was filled with agitation. However, when I bent down and slid my feet foremost in through the window, then I looked around for the Count, but with surprise and gladness made a discovery. The room was empty. It was barely furnished with odd things which seemed to have never been used. The furniture was something the same style as that in the south rooms, and was covered with dust. I looked for the key, but it was not in the lock, and I could not find it anywhere. The only thing I found 
was a great heap of gold in one corner, gold of all kinds, Roman and British and Austrian and Hungarian and Greek and Turkish money, covered with a film of dust as though it had lain long in the ground. None of it that I noticed was less than 300 years old. There were also chains and ornaments, some jeweled, but all of them old and stained. At one corner of the room was a heavy door. I tried it, for since I could not find the key of the room or the key of the outer door, which was the main objective of my search, I must make further examination, or all my efforts would be in vain. It was open, and led through a stone passage to a circular stairway, which went steeply down. I descended, minding carefully where I went, for the stairs were dark, being only lit by loopholes in the heavy masonry. At the bottom there was a dark, tunnel-like passage, through which came a deathly sickly odour, the odour of old earth newly turned. As I went through the passage, the smell grew closer and heavier. At last I pulled open a heavy door which stood ajar, and found myself in an old, ruined chapel, which had evidently been used as a graveyard. The roof was broken, and in two places were steps leading to vaults, but the ground had recently been dug over, and the earth placed in great wooden boxes, manifestly those which had been brought by the Slovaks. There was nobody about, and I made search for any further outlet, but there was none. Then I went over every inch of the ground, so as not to lose a chance. I went down even into the vaults, where the dim light struggled, although to do so was a dread to my very soul. Into two of these I went, but saw nothing except fragments of old coffins and piles of dust. In the third, however, I made a discovery. There, in one of the great boxes, of which there were fifty in all, on a pile of newly dug earth lay the Count. He was either dead or asleep, I could not say which, for the eyes were open and stony, but without the glassiness of death, and the cheeks had warmth of life through all their pallor. Their lips were as red as ever, but there was no sign of movement, no pulse, no breath, no beating of the heart. I bent over him and tried to find any sign of life, but in vain. He could not have lain there long, for the earthy smell would have passed away in a few hours. By the side of the box was its cover, pierced with holes here and there. I thought he might have the keys on him, but when I went to search I saw the dead eyes, and in them, dead though they were, such a look of hate, though unconscious of me or my presence, that I fled from the place, and leaving the Count's room by the window, crawled again up the castle wall, regaining my room, and I threw myself panting upon the bed, and tried to think. 29th June Today is the date of my last letter, and the Count has taken steps to prove that it was genuine. For again I saw him leave the castle by the same window and in my clothes. As he went down the wall, lizard fashion, I wished I had a gun or some lethal weapon that I might destroy him. But I fear that no weapon wrought alone by man's hand would have any effect on him. I dared not wait to see him return, for I feared to see those weird sisters. I came back to the library, and read there till I fell asleep. I was awakened by the Count, who looked at me as grimly as a man can look as he said, Tomorrow, my friend, 
we must part. You return to your beautiful England, I to some work which may have such an end that we may never meet. Your letter home has been dispatched. Tomorrow I shall not be here, but all shall be ready for the journey. In the morning came the Zgarni, who have some labors of their own here, and also come some Slavaks. When they have gone, my courage shall come for you, and shall bear you to the Borgo Pass, to meet the diligence from Bokovina to Bristritz. But I am in hopes that I shall see more of you at Castle Dracula. I suspected him and was determined to test his sincerity. Sincerity. <laughs> it seems like a profanation of the word to write it in connection with such a monster. So, I asked him point blank. Why may I not go tonight? Because, dear sir, my coachman and horses are away on a mission. But I would walk with pleasure. I want to get away at once. He smiled, such a soft, smooth, diabolical smile, that I knew there was some trick behind his smoothness. He said, And your baggage? I do not care about it. I can send for it some other time. The Count stood up and said, with a sweet curtsy which made me rub my eyes, it seemed surreal. You English have a saying which is close to my heart. For its spirit in that which rules our boyars. Welcome the coming, speed the parting guest. Come with me, my dear young friend. Not an hour shall you wait in my house against your will. Though sad am I at your going, and that you so suddenly desire it, come with me. With a stately gravity, he with the lamp preceded me down the stairs and along the hall. Suddenly, he stopped. Hark! Close at hand came the howling of many wolves. It was almost as if the sound sprang up at the rising of his hand, just as the music of a great orchestra seemed to leap under the baton of the conductor. After a pause of a moment, he proceeded, in his stately way to the door drew back the ponderous bolts, unhooked the heavy chains, and began to draw it open. To my intense astonishment, I saw that it was unlocked. Suspiciously, I looked all around, but could see no key of any kind. As the door began to open, the howling of the wolves without grew louder and angrier, their red jaws with champing teeth, and their blunt clawed feet as they leapt, came in through the opening door. I knew then that the struggle at the moment against the Count was useless. With such allies as this at his command, I could do nothing. But still the door continued slowly to open, and only the Count's body stood in the gap. Suddenly it struck me that this might be the moment of means of my doom. I was to be given to the wolves, and at my own instigation. There was a diabolical wickedness in the idea great enough for the Count and as a last chance, I cried out, Shut the door! I shall wait till morning! And covered my face with my hands to hide my tears of bitter disappointment. With one sweep of his powerful arm, the Count threw the door shut, 
and the great bolts clanged and echoed through the hall as they shot back into their places. In silence, we returned to the library, and after a minute or two, I went to my own room. The last I saw of Count Dracula was his kissing his hand to me, with a red light of triumph in his eyes, and with a smile that Judas in hell might be proud of. When I was in my room and about to lie down, I thought I heard a whispering at my door. I went to it softly and listened. Unless my ears deceived me, I heard the voice of the Count. Back, back to your own place. Your time is not yet come. Wait, have patience. Tonight is mine. Tomorrow night is yours. There was a low, sweet ripple of laughter. And in a rage, I threw open the door and saw without the three terrible women licking their lips. As I appeared, they all joined in a horrible laugh and ran away. I came back to my room and threw myself on my knees. It is then so near the end. Tomorrow, tomorrow, Lord help me and to those whom I am dear. 30 June, morning. These may be the last words I ever write in this diary. I slept till just before the dawn, and when I woke, threw myself on my knees, for I determined that if death came, he should find me ready. At last I felt that subtle change in the air, and knew that the morning had come. Then came the welcome cockcrow, and I felt that I was safe. With a glad heart, I opened my door and ran down to the hall. I had seen that the door was unlocked and now escape was before me. With hands that trembled with eagerness, I unhooked the chains and drew back the massive bolts. But the door would not move. Despair seized me. I pulled and pulled at the door and shook it till, massive as it was, it rattled in its casement. I could see the bolts shot. It had been locked after I left the count. Then a wild desire took me to obtain that key at any risk. And I determined then and there to scale the wall again and gain the Count's room. He might kill me. But death now seemed the happier choice of evils. Without a pause, I rushed up to the east window and scrambled down the wall, as before, into the Count's room. It was empty, but that was as I expected. I could not see a key anywhere, but the heap of gold remained. I went through the door in the corner and down the winding stair and along the dark passage to the old chapel. I knew now well enough where to find the monster I sought. The great box was in the same place, close against the wall, but the lid was laid on it, not fastened down but with the nails ready in their places to be hammered home. I knew I must reach the body for the key, so I raised the lid and laid it back against the wall, and then I saw something which filled my very soul with horror. There lay the Count, but looking as if his youth had been half renewed, for the white hair and moustache were changed to dark iron grey, the cheeks were fuller, and the white skin seemed ruby red underneath. The mouth was redder than ever, for on the lips were gouts of fresh blood, which trickled from the corners of the mouth and ran over the chin and neck. Even the deep burning eyes seemed set amongst swollen flesh 
for the lids and pouches underneath were bloated. It seemed as if the whole awful creature was simply gorged with blood. He lay like a filthy leech, exhausted with his repletion. I shuddered as I bent over to touch him, and every scent in me revolted at the contact. But I had to search, or I was lost. The coming night might see my own body a banquet in a similar way to those horrid three. I felt all over the body, but no sign could I find of the key. Then I stopped and looked at the Count. There was a mocking smile on the bloated face, which seemed to drive me mad. This was the being I was helping to transfer to London, where perhaps for centuries to come he might amongst its teeming millions satiate his lust for blood, and grate a new and ever-widening circle of semi-demons to batten on the helpless. The very thought drove me mad. A terrible desire came upon me to rid the world of such a monster. There was no lethal weapon at hand, but I seized a shovel which the workmen had been using to fill the cases and lifted it high, struck with the edge downward at the hateful face. But as I did so, the head turned and the eyes fell upon me with all their blaze of basilisk horror. The sight seemed to paralyze me and the shovel turned in my hand and glanced from the face, merely making a deep gash above the forehead. The shovel fell from my hand across the box, and as I pulled it away, the flange of the blade caught the edge of the lid, which fell over again, and hid the horrid thing from my sight. The last glimpse I had was of the bloated face, bloodstained and fixed with the grin of malice, which would have held its own in the nethermost hell. I thought and thought what should be my next move. My brain seemed on fire, and I waited with a despairing feeling growing over me. As I waited, I heard in the distance a gypsy song sung by merry voices coming closer, and through their song the rolling of heavy wheels and the cracking of whips. The Zgani and the Slovaks, of whom the Count had spoken, were coming. With a last look around at the box, which contained the vile body, I ran from the place and gained the Count's room, determined to rush out at the moment the door should be opened. With strained ears, I listened and heard downstairs the grinding of the key in the great lock and the falling back of the heavy door. There must have been some other means of entry, or someone had a key for one of the locked doors. Then there came the sound of many feet tramping and dying away in some passage which sent up a clanging echo. I turned to run down again towards the vault, where I might find the new entrance, but at the moment there seemed to come a violent puff of wind, and the door to the winding stair blew to with a shock that sent the dust from the lentils flying. When I ran to push it open, I found that it was hopelessly fast. I was again a prisoner, and the net of doom was closing around me more closely. As I write, there is the passage below, a sound of many tramping feet, and the crash of weights being set down heavily, doubtless the boxes with their freight of earth. There is a sound of hammering, it is the box being nailed down. Now I can hear the heavy feet tramping again along the hall, with many other idle feet coming behind them. The door is shut and the chains rattle, there is a grinding of the key in the lock, I can hear the key withdraw. Then another door opens and shuts. I hear the cracking of lock and bolt. Hark! 
In the courtyard and down the rocky way, the roll of heavy wheels, the crack of whips, and the chorus of the Zgani as they pass into the distance. I am alone in the castle with those awful women. Fah! <sighs> Mina is a woman, and there is naught in common. They are devils of the pit. I shall not remain alone with them. I shall try to scale the castle wall farther than I have yet attempted. I shall take some of the gold with me, lest I want it later. I may find a way from this dreadful place. And then away from home. Away to the quickest and nearest train. Away from this cursed spot, from this cursed land, where the devil and his children still walk with earthly feet. At least God's mercy is better than that of these monsters, and the precipice is steep and high. At its foot a man may sleep as a man. Goodbye, all. Mina. This concludes chapter 4. So ends chapter 4 of Dracula, where we found out that Mr. Harker is tightly bound in the grasp of Dracula, in a strange game that Dracula is playing, dangling freedom in front of him to only take it away through forced outcomes and choices that Mr. Harker is forced to make. There is such a level of cruelty that we see from Dracula that really separates him from other monsters or villains. A calculative evil that enjoys the struggle, the false hope, the wanting for freedom, and the betrayal of that freedom openly. Goading his captive, making them feel like they have a chance. So insidious, this Dracula. Either way, it's only getting better, and I hope you're enjoying this series. Now listeners, on to our mini tales for those that donate to this podcast, from White Tea Warlord and above. I can't wait to say my thank yous with stories that I write just for you lot. First up, my mythical Ode Night Tea Titans, Maya, Well of Insanity. In the dark marshes of Transylvania is a well whose spring only brings madness. Heroes have ventured to conquer these lands and supped from the sweet mixture that flows through these ravines, creeks, and rivers, of which are all connected to the well of insanity. Prince Tolto was the first to be ravaged by its venomous touch. After drinking deeply from a nearby spring whose waters smelt of honey and rose-like fragrance, his men watched him freeze as if he'd forgotten an item or mistakenly left his sword or helmet on his journey to the castle. What they didn't expect was their prince to ooze blue vapor from his eyes and from his fingertips as if his soul was escaping his body right in front of them. Prince Talto began to scream, so loud you'd swear the man was being tortured, then nothing but silence. After that, he began biting chunks of flesh from his arms and chewing viciously. It took him years to fully heal. To this day, Prince Talto is kept alive under the care of his brother's kingdom. Every day he regains a little of his humanity, his memories, and his kingdom will be forever warned on the dangers of that well and the waters that run beneath it. Solstra, Prisoners of Kalut. A large fort remains unknown to the populace surrounding Transylvania other than the structure itself, which seems well kept and maintained. In that fortification lies the prisoners of Kalut, owned by no human soul and kept at bay by dark forces, biding their time to strike when the cue is given to attack. This of course does not stop explorers from venturing deep into the prison, 
where a single ladder lays there for prey to wander in, a flytrap for humans and careless animals to fall and break their bones on the hard ceramic flooring. Kalut is host to many creatures, but I'll describe two today, to acquaint you with the kind of creatures that you may encounter in this prison. Thahul is the bringer of desperation, a magic user whose eyes were removed on her own accord, to better see the world vicariously through the weaves of magic. Her speciality is turning the mundane into the fixation of the insane. Large groups and parties have explored here, only to have them murder each other, over which rung of the ladder they owned, having them slaughter each other before even setting foot inside the prison. There's nothing special about the ladder, but the Hool makes it so. Another time, the Hool has waged bargains with rocks she's found on the ground, with her unsuspecting victim gradually slicing off their arms in hopes to trade for the rock. The Hool is cruel, but creative for sure. And lastly for today is Gehud, the Shadow Wisp. Far more direct in its style, Gehud is the renderer of shadow, summoning the darkness in the souls and body of others, planting seeds in them as they enter the fort. Those who enter with nothing but cloth is child's play for Gehud, stinging them without them noticing as soon as they enter the prison, to only have them implode in front of their friend's eyes or lose parts of their limbs to dark and grotesque tentacles, exploding where their arms or legs once were. Never delve deep into this fortress, and whatever you do, avoid Kalut altogether, but agony, pain, and new ways to die. Mates, I went for a more sinister vibe today, bringing you a more darker and vicious set of stories. I hope you like them, mates. Thank both of you for bringing a smile to my face every time I upload an episode. Seriously, you two remind me of why I love doing this, and how thankful I am that you put Dollary Doos in this show to improve it. Thank you from the bottom of my heart. Now it's time for my legendary white tea warlords, Ion Cows, Chef of Dark Meats. Mr. Cows is an experiencer, a man who spends more time saying, that's cool, let's do it, rather than, dear lord, that thing has eight legs, leave it alone. And with that attitude, the chef of Dark Meats was born. The town this chef lives in is called Brecca, a place that was once known for its culinary expertise and wide range of meat flavors. Now, as the darkness encroaches throughout the land, resources are slim and people have been going missing. No, no, they are not being eaten by the populace, but they are certainly being eaten, that's a given. This led to Mr. Cow's thinking outside the box, and having stumbled into the marshes on a random trip one day, he found a number of cows that he recognized as Brecker-branded cows from his hometown. Sure, they were worse for wear, but I mean, meat is hard to come by. Upon getting them home, he cooked up a storm, fed the entire town, and celebrated the newfound meat, until he realized, and the rest of the town realized, that they could see in the dark. Odd, but by no means unacceptable. And so the feast continued, and as weeks passed, the town began to change, more people began to go missing, and this time, the populace were eating each other. Mr. Cows wasn't dumb, he ran for his life, and having grown another set of legs, he was able to literally leg it out of there faster than anyone else. To this day, he wanders the marshes, feasting on dark meats, wondering what gifts he will be bestowed next. And Lee Bauer the Imbued. Braces of Bauer, a coveted item amongst the monks of Hiltz the Playo, 
a group dedicated to quashing the dark creatures that invade and infiltrate the land around Brekka. The recent outbreak in that location has led to Lee Bauer, the Imbued, to be brought in to lead their forces. The training required to take out a darkness-infected human, a generic monster of the night, or even a strong goliath demon is unique. A combination of practical training and on-the-job experience, with Lee Bauer being not just a veteran, but a martial artist expert. But it's not just brawn, not just technique, but also imbuement that makes him special. Over Lee's body is an ink that sits on the surface of his skin, waiting, eager to be called upon, to be used. A symbiotic organism that Lee created from the blood of Dark Ones. And this is what I mean by Lee being special. One of his biggest victories was that of the Battalion of Thorns, a patrol of 40 dark creatures with forged Blackmore armor that deflects even the sharpest of swords and fills naught from arrows. Lee went in alone. He told his men to flee. Standing against a number of 40, they charged, and Lee stood fast. 50 meters, they're closing. 30 meters, they're closing. 15 meters, and the front line were completely eviscerated. Torrents of dark blood flew through the air, siphoned into Lee's imbued body, reigniting the fury inside him to only lash out once more at the patrol. This time, decimating the backline forces and impaling the remaining core forces of the patrol. His men never left, and they witnessed the power he wielded. To this day, he's revered as a keen general, but only his closest friends know what he's capable of. Mates, I hope you enjoyed your mix of crazy and full-on warfare stories. Both of these were so much fun to write, and I hope you enjoyed them. Thank you so much for your support, and just like all my supporters, you both inspire me to deliver more and constantly improve. Thank you. And of course, my Earl Grey enforcers, Chad Warren, Just Heather, Lorraine Grisanto, Paige Marcini, Peter Raffelli, Tasha Moncrief, Christina Boyd, Divided by Zero, Tristan Cassidy, and Dolphin and Cow. Thank you so much for supporting this show, mates. Every donation is pumped right back into production, which means better sound, better stories, and even better music. If you'd like to consider supporting the podcast, like these brilliant people do, visit www.patreon.com forward slash sfgt. So patreon.com forward slash sfgt to support the show. And if you have a couple of seconds spare this week, swing on by my iTunes page, which is in the show notes, to leave an iTunes review. Doing either of those things really helps the podcast, mates. And thank you so much for considering have a wonderful Wednesday, and as always, till next we meet.